adding different kinds of fibers, whether it's, you know, the solubles, the insolubles, the plant-based, human-based, like it's always great to have a diversification because there's so many microbes that you can't just affect them all with one thing. Some may require something a little bit different than, you know, its neighbor, for example. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Leading pet food manufacturers, renderers, and ingredient suppliers recognize that Kemen is assurance. Every day they deliver specialized expertise, innovative products, and unrivaled support through the pet food and rendering value chain. From oxidation control and food safety to palatability and nutrition, all the way through a suite of tailored services that allow you to feel supported from start to finish to ensure you're getting the most from Kemen ingredients. That's why every step of the way, Kemen Nutrisurance is your partner in pet food and rendering ingredients. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where we seek to discuss current research and how we may apply to innovation in the pet and nutrition industries. I am your host, Julia Pezawi, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Sarah Belchik about some potential dietary strategies that we can use for quicker recovery of microbiota and bioacids in dogs. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, and uh, before we delve into the topic of the microbiome and some dietary strategies to help with that, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and how you end up in your current position or in grad school today? Yes, yes, absolutely. So I, um, I grew up as a military kid, so go Navy, and I kind of grew up all over the East Coast and in my house, we like to make the joke that I was so busy moving around on the coast for the longest time that I decided to make the leap and, you know, fly and move a thousand miles away into the land of corn and flatness. Um, and so in 2017, I came to U of I, completed my bachelor's in three and a half years with a focus on um, animal sciences. And then I also got a minor in human based nutrition. After that, I quickly jumped on board to grad school. Um, I actually found my inspiration because of my advisor, Dr. Kelly Swanson, teaches ANSI 422, which is uh, companion animal nutrition. And kind of from there, I found this inspiration of nutrition. I grew up always thinking like, I'm going to be a vet. I'm going to be a vet. That's what I want to do. And kind of after working with an in-house shelter veterinarian, I was very fortunate to work with him. But that's kind of when I decided, you know, I don't this isn't for me and I needed to find something else. And so here I kind of found that inspiration during my undergrad years. 
And so once I started my master's, I completed that in, I believe it was August of 2022 was my official defense. So I am a second year PhD student now. Um, But I did animal sciences with that one as well with my thesis, as we'll kind of talk about some of that today, but focusing on a milk oligosaccharide biosimilar in gut recovery. And then now I'm currently undergoing my PhD program with also Dr. Kelly Swanson. So I just I love the corn. That's the joke in our household. (laughs) Yeah. And it's very exciting to hear that your undergrad experience has shaped uh, your next experience in life in grad school and everything. There are so Absolutely. many undergrads that want to do companion animal and enjoy animal science department today more than ever. And we need to expose them to all their options beyond veterinary school. And Absolutely. Is, uh, as a major opportunity. So I'm glad that you had that experience in Illinois. And I hope many other people who lo- love companion animal and looking for all the opportunities beyond veterinary school can have the same experience as we did. Yes, I definitely do love my school. I feel like I wouldn't have known about companion animal nutrition being a field had it not been for the classes that are here. Um, Dr. Kelly Swanson and Dr. Maria Godoy kind of worked together to shape the companion animal nutrition field and just taking their classes and learning everything. I, I mean, I'm a microbiome person. I'm a gut recovery person, but it's still so fascinating that there's so much in this field that I find that not many people are aware of or kind of think about, you know, studying pet food or studying ingredients and things like that. So I'm definitely very fortunate to be where I am right now at U of I. Yeah, no, great university, great mentor. So I'm sure you're going to do great things in the world after graduate. Thank you. So we mentioned a little bit about your master's work that you look into milk oligosaccharides. To kind of have everyone that is listening in the same page, what are oligosaccharides? Can you define that to us and what is their importance in the milk? Yeah, so oligosaccharides in general can range anywhere between three to 10 sugar um, linkages, whether it's, you know, lactose or glucose or anything like that. Um, But my specific focus was in milk oligosaccharides, which are a constituent of human based or any kind of mammalian based milk. And so kind of what these milk oligosaccharides do or kind of how they're structured is to bypass any kind of digestion so that the gut microbes can get to it, whether they're fermenting it for short chain fatty acid production or they're utilizing it for growth and development. It's kind of um, in the milk to provide that growth and that stimulation, whether it's gut associated or immune associated reactions. So basically they're we can call maybe bioactive compounds in the milk. They're going to help with gut health and immune response in the gut. So probably very important for those puppies and kittens and infants as well when they're ingesting. Exactly. So a lot of those, the milk oligosaccharides, I mean, if we're talking specific ones where my focus was, was animal-based ones, they have a lot of sialic compounds that provided Mm -hmm. a binding point for potential uh, pathogenic bacteria to bind to. So they kind of have this anti-adhesive or antimicrobial functionality to prevent from uh, pathogenic infection. So it's a very interesting compound. Definitely, I would kind of call it down that route where it has a beneficial effect because it's doing something for the gut maturation. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, it's basically a compound that is found in milk of mammals. So what do we know about these compounds or the composition, the percentage of oligosaccharides in milks of dogs and cats compared to humans? Uh, what, what do you know so far? 
So my knowledge on human versus animal is that the human milk profile is so much more diverse than that of a dog and a cat, for example. And since I did my research in dog or at least the animal-based milk, I'll kind of talk a little bit about that compound. So um, in the, the animals or specifically the dog, most of the compounds that are within it, you know, it can be proteins, it can be um, other compounds, but the main part is that 90% of it is these milk oligosaccharides that are acting on that gut that that are being consumed and bypassing and promoting um, growth and development, for example. And so those 90% or that higher, that higher profile in milk is often those sialic or fucosylated compounds that are benefiting the, the gut microbes. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about good microbes, are you talking about small intestine, large intestine, all of it, right? Not I, only large yes. intestine. Yes, it is anything and everything in the gut microbes. I mean, Obviously, there's going to be different profiles of bacterial abundances within each different sector of the intestine, whether it's, you know, the the ileum versus like the colon. The profiles are going to be so different. But the the main part is that it's the milk oligos are getting to those microbes and they're allowing for fermentation um, in the very later parts of the GI tract. Yeah, I think sometimes when you talk about gut health, many people only think about the large intestine, but we need to feed these microbes that are in the large intestine as well, where the absorption digestion is going to occur. So very important to make them healthy up there as well, not only in the later part of the, the intestine. Absolutely. And some of the things that we also kind of talk about in nutrition is the factor, the big word, digestibility. And so we're talking a lot about how nutrients are digested, but also absorbed so that the host can also utilize them too. So kind of benefiting not only the microbes, but the host because they can reabsorb some of those compounds that the microbes can make or, you know, the regular vitamins and minerals and nutrients and all the good stuff that comes in a normal food too. Yeah, very important for uh, enterocytes as well and keeping them healthy too, too make sure you're absorbing and utilizing all those nutrients. So we talk a little bit about the oligosaccharides in dog milk and their importance. So your major research for masters, what was the major objective and what was the product you were using in terms of oligosaccharide compositions, more human-based, dog-based, and what was your major goal of testing this compound in the diets of dogs? Absolutely. So the product I tested, I don't think I can expose the name of it, um, but the research is out there. So if you find my name, you can find the product and you can find the research. Um, but the product was essentially, it was a novel biosimilar, meaning that it wasn't stemmed from an animal milk purification. It wasn't from humans. It was actually um, porcine mucosa where this was uh, derived from. So the product that I tested, it was more so trying to focus on improving those commensal gut microbes. And so what previous research has seen, whether it's in humans or animals, is that this this milk oligos, they can kind of emphasize or increase selection for bifidobacterium and bacteroides species. And so that was kind of my target is if we're feeding these commensals and we're improving these like the good guy bacteria, for example, how does that affect the gut in terms of like pre and post stress conditions? And so the objective of my study was to take this supplemental product and it was a top dress product. Uh, dosed at 1% of the di- uh, the dietary intake, so like how much food that they were eating per day. 
And then all the animals would consume it on top of a diaper, a diet that was free of any additional prebiotics or probiotics. So there was no confounding factors in it. And then we tested um, metronidazole as a GI stress condition. And so we gave them metronidazole on top of this dosage to see if the gut recovery was improved, whether it was microbes, it was bile acids, it was fecal proteins. Um, that's what we were kind of looking for was seeing if, you know, adding this supplemental product that has historically been shown based on the chemical properties of it, like with the individual milk oligo structures, and that it whether it does improve recovery or it's helping the animals in some way, whether it's through promoting commensals or reducing pathogenics or potentially pathogenics. That's kind of what my thesis was all about. Yeah, you mentioned you did um, probably antibiotic challenge or the notical challenge. Can you explain to our audience why you're hoping to get of this challenge? Maybe dysbiosis and to kind of see the positive effects of this, uh, this product? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason that we choose antibiotics as a, a GI stress, one, it's representative of what's happening in the clinical world. So veterinarians are very, very commonly prescribing metronidazole or really any kind of antibiotic in general when it comes to GI issues, whether it's, you know, a bacterial infection or they're just having a really bad bout of diarrhea, for example. Antibiotics are commonly one of the first treatment options when it when the owner brings up this concern, for example. And so the reason that we're challenging an antibiotic is to essentially wipe out majority of the microbes that are in the animal at that time and to see what recovers, what doesn't recover. Are there any long-term effects that we can see within our like four-week post-recovery period? And so we're, we're trying to look and see if adding these is what's going to drive recovery quicker than that of an animal that, for example, may just be consuming an antibiotic and, you know, like a can of food, for example, and trying to watch out for, for those kinds of recovery conditions. Yeah. And you mentioned as well that beyond uh, the microbiome, you look into bioacid and probably the profile between primary and secondary bioacids. Can you explain a little bit uh, why you're looking at bioacids, fecal bioacids, and maybe their importance for gut health? Yeah, absolutely. So bile acids are, they're produced um, to help with lipid digestion. And so essentially what happens is that the, um, as a, a person consumes, a bile salt is released. And so it starts from the liver, from cholesterol, and then it is kind of biosynthesized into a bile salt where it's conjugated with like taurine or glycine, for example. But in animals, it's primarily taurine that's conjugated with it, not glycine. Um, and so essentially what happens is that once the, the person eats the food or eats a diet, that bile salt is making it into the small intestine to help with lipid digestion and absorption. And so what happens kind of on like the aftermath of it is that that lipid is now encapsulated in this micelle, which can then be absorbed from the small intestine and either utilized by the host for energy or storage um, or, you know, re kind of processed or re um, reabsorbed for future usage as well. So there's like a recycling element to it as well. But Anything that doesn't get reabsorbed, which I believe the percentage is about 90% is what's reabsorbed, leaving that extra like 5% to 10% up for bacterial transformation or that conversion from primary to secondary, for example. And so ideally, and kind of like why we look at bile acids is because it's a really good marker for microbial activity. And there's only very specific enzymes that are produced by specific bacterial species that can help from that conversion from primary to secondary. And so some of those that we're looking into are things like lithocolic acid, deoxycholic acid, and ursodeoxycholic acid. Um, and so we're kind of looking at 
what's being produced, what's being changed, what's being utilized by the microbes, because we can measure that in the feces of the primaries to secondaries and kind of see, you know, if there's less of primaries being converted in the secondaries, that's a great indicator that something's not quite in the microbiome. There's some kind of dysbiotic nature to it where the microbes aren't able to execute function as normal versus we can measure the secondaries. And if they're in very high and great concentrations, then hopefully there's no problem to detect there. But that's kind of why we measure them and what we're targeting. Yeah, so a way to kind of measure the activity, as you said, of the microbiome. There's Absolutely. no secondaries. There's no, none of those bacteria converting primary to secondary and may indicate as biosis. So exactly. very nice. I love bioacids too. I did a little bit of that work in my master's, so I'm always fascinated to learn more about it. It's so definitely very really exciting. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just saying it's very exciting. I it did, is. Yeah, it's a very exciting thing. And we are learning more and more about it in, in dogs and in cats as well. So uh, lots of opportunity to investigate more about this metabolism. So we basically stress the dogs or beta antimicrobial stress. And then you fed this um, milk oligosaccharides and investigate it if they recover quickly for this potential dysbiosis or changes in the microbiome caused by this uh, antimicrobial the metronidazole. So what is the major findings that you found? Did it help or not? So some of our results that we figured out, so I should have probably disclaimed at the beginning, we fed the the supplemental product at the same time as antibiotics. So it's kind of seeing if it would like build up and for recovery. Um, thinking of like a, a probiotic and an antibiotic together, for example. Um, but some of our main findings were actually kind of exciting to me. So the antibiotic, we know it's been established in the literature that metronidazole is a great disruptor of microbes, whether it's decreasing or allowing for susceptibility, for example, of potentially pathogenic microbes. And so what we saw in our research was very comparable to that of the literature where dysbiosis is increased, meaning there's more drastic shifts. Um, you had Dr. Sukodelsky on the podcast just this past week, and that's like one of his big things. Um, and so what we saw is that there was like more chaotic um, abundances measured within the, the fecal samples, for example. So we saw increases in streptococcus and E. coli, and those are get a bad rap within the gut. We'll just say that. Um, so they kind of get this, this bad effect. Um, and so because of the antibiotic, we saw increases in those with decreases in some of our beneficials, um, such as uh, Teresibacter. We're looking at some of the other ones on a QPCR panel. Um, and so what we kind of saw is that, yes, metronidazole is great at disrupting. But then what we saw kind of using the, the GNU100 product is that it was able to assist with recovery measures. And so what we're seeing is that the GNU did beneficially select for some of those essential microbes to increase bile acid conversion. And so unfortunately, there wasn't much of a difference um, within like our four weeks of recovery period. There could have been longer lasting effects. Um, That's certainly a limitation to the study is that if we would have fed this earlier in advance, would there have been quicker recovery methods, for example, or um, parameters? But um, we also kind of did observe that with any antibiotic treatment, you're always going to have a fluctuation, whether it's in body weight, moods, attitudes, things like that. Um, we don't do behavioral scores, but what I did measure was body weight and body condition score. And 
unfortunately you can feed them to maintain body weight, but my dogs fluctuated a little bit more due to the antibiotic treatment, which was expected. Um, but on the, the bright side, kind of looking at that, that gut, we saw an increase in alpha diversity measures. We saw better uh, beta diversity. So it was like better clustering, for example, within the two different dietary treatments that kind of opens up the, the realm of, you know, if we're trying to shift the microbe back to something that's considered to be normal or good, this product can help that because of its beneficial, the, the prebiotic, the milk oligo kind of components that are selectively utilizing for those species. Yeah, I know that's great that you saw some differences in the impact of the oligosaccharides, the beneficial impact. So do you think um, there are any other situations in a dog or cat life that there is stress that may change the gut microbiome that they may benefit from milk oligosaccharides that are not related to antib- uh, antibiotics, but maybe any other stress or that they may benefit from it? Yes, absolutely. So there's definitely some external perturbations or some external disturbances that can kind of cause this this dysbiotic or this um, stressed out gut. And it could be just the diet itself. Uh, we commonly see within the, the pet food or companion animal industry with nutrition that food allergies can be a problem with inflammation, gut dysbiosis. And so diet is definitely one of the biggest factors. And uh, Dr. Sugodolsky said it best last week, but diet is one of our best medications that we can use in the field to kind of help with it. And so diet definitely can be a benefit, but it also can be a stressor under the wrong conditions. But then also too, in a home or in a different environmental setting, thinking about like putting your dog in the car and taking them to the vet can definitely stress them out. Um, granted, that's like a very short term thing, but environment in general can absolutely disturb a, a guy, whether you just relocated and moves homes, for example, there's all new allergens that can cause that animal to become inflamed or distressed. And so those are probably the two more common ones that I'm familiar with within my research. But Absolutely. And also life stage too. I guess I should mention that the older that you get, your gut's just not the same as it used to be. So <laughs> definitely age can play as well as genetics into some of this, these stressors on the gut. Yeah. Many of those stresses that you mentioned as well can potentially also cause leaky gut. So that's probably another very exciting area to explore in the future about maybe those milk oligosaccharides can potentially help with leaky gut and prevent diarrhea. And you probably have seen if you take stress a cat very much with many things that cats get stressed with, they have diarrhea and that's probably caused by leaky gut. So there's a lot of potential to investigate these dietary strategies maybe to to help in those stressful situations that may lead to leaky gut. Yeah, and there are some human studies out there that have shown that it can increase some of those tight junction proteins, such as like occludin, for example, that can kind of help better modulate the gut from an epithelial cell, like that junction standpoint. Not necessarily just the microbes. Absolutely benefiting the microbes is a great thing to do, but kind of making sure that that gut is very resilient to leaking, for example, is another great feature about milk oligosaccharides in general. Yeah, So do you have any thoughts on maybe in a practical application, let's say someone from the industry is listening to us and then they may think, okay, let's think about including milk oligosaccharides in our diet. Uh, Should we include with other prebiotics? Can they replace prebiotics? Uh, Do you have any thoughts on this and the practical application of uh, milk oligosaccharides in a commercial diet? Yeah, absolutely. So the product that I was working with was very dry and very powdery. Um, And so if you're thinking about a practical application, whether it's putting it into a diet and extruding it, for example, some of those chemical properties, such as like the moisture attractant of it may kind of 
may may not be the best um, could possibly produce a very gunky food. Um, And so we used it in the application of top dressing. So as like a supplemental product, but I would not say it should just solely replace prebiotics. For example, adding different kinds of fibers, whether it's, you know, the solubles, the insolubles, the plant-based, human-based, like it's always great to have a diversification because there's so many microbes that, you can't just affect them all with one thing. Some may require something a little bit different than, you know, its neighbor, for example. And so I, I would like to see this product or at least some of these applications kind of being applied as like a supplemental product that can be top dressed or given in addition to other probiotics or prebiotics. Because at the end of the day, the reason that I'm looking into this is because of gut distress or gut disease or something's wrong with the microbiome. And so if you're trying to focus on recovery, then my recommendation, or at least my my research is kind of focusing on, you know, what can provide the overall maximum benefit. And I definitely think that diversification can can help with that. But this product definitely shows really amazing benefits to modulating the things that we are trying to target, for example. Yeah, I think the growth of the the sector within the pet food industry that is growing the most is supplements more than complete and balanced diets. So there's a lot of room to explore different supplements and you're probably going to be moving over the years to a more uh, active space. So people are probably going to be looking into those supplements to, you know, prevent disturbance rather than, you know, to treat. So there's a lot of opportunities to create those different supplements for good health. I mean, other ones as well. So that's Absolutely. A, great, a great opportunity too. Yes, I do think that there is a really great side to the pet food industry, whether it is supplement or it is, you know, formulating it into a diet, kind of preventing the problem before a problem can begin. That's kind of how I like to think of it is, you know, if we can work either if it is a supplement or if there is a product out there that can better be incorporated into a diet to help prevent disease before it can happen, then absolutely. So that's how I kind of take my approach to nutrition is, you know, what can I add or what can I focus on that can help prevent a problem before the problem's too late? Yeah. And as you mentioned, antibiotics are used constantly in their lives uh, for good or for bad sometimes. And they're everyone undergoes stress. So dogs and cats, they do as well and help them during those times as a preventive measurement is very important. So we talk a little bit about those oligosaccharides and the milk oligosaccharides are becoming kind of a hot topic in the pet food industry now, but we learned or know a little bit about oligosaccharides for many years and a lot of legumes and mostly soybean meal or soy products, they do have oligosaccharides. And I think with the grain-free diets, people start to pay a little bit more attention to it. We do have some research about soy oligosaccharides in the past and effects on stool quality and uh, flatulence in dogs. Uh, and again, with the grain-free diets becoming more popular last year, they, people pay more attention for oligosaccharides. Can you help explain a little bit what is the difference between plant oligosaccharides and milk oligosaccharides? Are they the same? Uh, can we achieve similar benefits uh, as those milk oligosaccharides may have, as you explained from our master research, with the plant-based oligosaccharides? Yeah, so, I mean, the difference is... It's kind of in the name. The plant-based ones or the plant-based oligosaccharides come from the plant itself, whether it's in the cell structure, the cell wall, the plant wall structure. That's kind of where some of those oligosaccharides come from. So they can be soluble or insoluble, for example, versus the human milk oligosaccharides or just milk oligos in general are derived from maternal lactation production. And so some of those can have 
selective benefits. So I kind of already mentioned this, but the milk oligosaccharides will kind of target or can only be selectively utilized by some of those bacterial species, such as bifidobacterium and bacteroides. Um, versus the plant oligos can better be fermented by short-chain fatty acid producers, for example. And so some of their targets, at least kind of what I'm familiar with, can be very different. Uh, but from an from a overall gut health perspective, they're both doing really great jobs at trying to modulate, improving bacterial function, growth, protein synthesis, all kind of stemming from those microbes. And so, yes, they, they can absolutely, at least in the research, have shown some very similar effects, but some of their mechanisms are definitely, definitely different. Yeah. And I think sometimes you look for supplements and all those other key aspects, and we have a lot of those important molecules in products or plant-based products and we if you drive to a meat-based diet with no plant sources we're missing those and we're not going to find those in meat so also very important to think about the whole picture and you know not demonize any ingredient or anything like this yes you're absolutely right it it definitely does kind of come down to what you're trying to target you know the diets that you're feeding i mean i don't there's different diets out there available for pets, whether it's a dry extruded kibble or a fresh one. The protein concentrations can definitely differ. Um, some of those higher proteins, like you said, with less fiber could maybe not be as so great for the gut can kind of lead to some of that, that constipation. And so fiber is, you know, it's kind of there to help with laxation and it's there to help with microbial productions and growth. And so it's definitely, definitely an important consideration, especially for those higher protein, less plant-based type diets. Yeah, for sure. So we talk a little bit about how those oligosaccharides can uh, be good modifiers, can be beneficial for good health. Uh, in our next research, do we, uh, for our PhD probably, have you been looking into other dietary strategies that help modify microbiome and bioacids during also this good stress that may be happening in their lives? Yes. So my PhD research has kind of taken some of that that knowledge from my master's thesis of antibiotic stress, kind of what happens in the gut. And so my PhD is kind of taking a more, I'm, I'm going to say a little bit of a wider scope because now I'm not working with just a product. I'm working with a specialized formulated diet that's intended to help gastrointestinal support. So it has higher concentrations of all kinds of fiber, whether it's, you know, fruit-based, it's vegetable-based. Some of the ingredients that are within these diets are specifically targeted towards increasing those short-chain fatty acid producers, for example. And so that's kind of where my, my PhD research is taking a focus on is, you know, finding this more optimal fiber inclusions, for example, you know, higher TDF, for example, kind of where the industry is going towards and measuring some of those insoluble soluble fractions. So we can see, you know, what may be utilized by the gut, what's maybe not, you know, laxation benefits and things like that within these diets. Um, but specifically for my, my dog study, which you and I kind of talked about a little bit, um, my dog study uses a low fat GI support diet. And so kind of taking a different element to it is including lower fat concentrations. And while there's no definition for like what low fat means, for example, the diet that I tested was about 9% AHF. So 9% fat overall. So it's definitely reduced from your generic commercial brand, which could be at 13 to 15%, for example. And so that's something that's kind of interesting about this next chapter of my research is I'm adding different elements of fiber and kind of focusing also on a different macronutrient at the same time. And so while including fiber at higher concentrations and reducing fat, can that help ease 
the burden of a stress, for example? Can that help the help the host kind of recover a little bit fist faster if not so much stress is being put on digestion, for example? Um, and something that's also interesting about this diet is that it's also higher protein. And so this higher protein element, higher fiber, but lower fat, does that help with overall host recovery? You know, is it easier for the animal to consume, digest, you know, what are the recovery parameters looking like? And so that's my research is, you know, kind of taking on these macronutrients and combining different factors to them together to see is there a greater or a much better way to help with recoveries um, following stress? So we're still using the same stress models we did before with antibiotics and we're looking at the pre and post conditions. And it's definitely exciting work because I feel like my study design, you give antibiotics and you go on a new diet or you walk into a clinic and you're given, you know, fresh cans of food to help with gut recovery, whether it's a GI support, you know, for example, or it's, you know, probiotic supplement or something like that to sprinkle on a food. And so my study now takes that design element into it of, you know, you're given antibiotics and then you're put on this treatment to help, you know, see, does it help recover? Is there less diarrhea? Is there less, you know, additional stress markers such as like inflammation within the gut, for example. So. That was a very long answer. So my no, that's very exciting. I'm very, I'm very glad to hear that and that you are applying different strategies in one product. So that's going to be also very applicable for the industry when they think about formulating because they probably do different strategies at the same time. And that's going to be um, very exciting. I'm interested about your bioacid results with, of course, the low fat, high fat is going to have a, an impact on probably how much bioacids are being excreted by the animals and, and overall. Do we have any results so far from that study or that you can share uh, with our audience? Yes. So I recently presented both of my dog and cat studies at ASAS this past year in Albuquerque. And so the studies that I presented is all the data that I can talk about since that was released at a scientific conference. Um, but essentially what we saw was, you know, again, the, the metronidazole really great at doing what it needs to. And it's reducing numbers of bacterial abundances. It's increasing bile acids in the primary forms, not necessarily the secondary forms. Um, and so kind of looking at the recovery standpoint, is there an increase in secondaries at the end? That's still some of the data that I'm looking into. Um, but kind of what we did see is that the specialized GI diet definitely does help it's got all the beneficial effects that you're looking for from prebiotics. So it's helping increase total short chain fatty acids. It's helping to kind of reduce some of the branch chain fatty acids and phenols and indoles that can sometimes be viewed as negative, for example, within the host. And so that's a very promising result is that, you know, formulating a special diet or including different levels of fibers, for example, is definitely promising for, for those parameters. Um, but then kind of specifically diving in on the bile acid side, one of the things that I look at is I'm looking at not necessarily just the total primaries and the total secondaries, but individual compounds that are measured. And so if the ratios are changing between, you know, for example, cholic acid and chemodeoxycholic acid versus like the secondaries is the ratio changing between the litho and deoxy and ursos that I mentioned before. And we kind of do this in collaboration with Dr. Sukodolsky's lab at Texas A&M as well. And so we're all kind of, you know, putting our brains together to figure out 
what do these ratios look like? What's changing? What is, you know, is there a specific bile acid that has selective preference within the gut microbes that we are trying to effectively increase um, from a, from a beneficial standpoint, obviously. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm diving into more, but the answer is essentially, yes, the bile acid recovery profile looks amazing with a specialized GI diet. And so kind of providing some of that emphasis or some of that direction towards it is amazing as well. But then when I mentioned bile acids earlier, I also mentioned cholesterol. And so it does start in the liver. It's definitely something interesting to bring up only because one of the new panels that we are now evaluating for results are fatty acids and sterile concentrations. And so we're kind of looking at some of those as well from from a very big macro lens right now, just trying to get the big picture of everything before I dive too deep into it. Um but we're seeing overall reductions in fecal fatty acids. So there's less fecal fatty acids that are escaping the host that can't be utilized. The same thing with sterile concentrations, for example. But I still need to do a little bit more diving before I can talk specifics. So, and, and also to kind of whatever we're looking at the sterile profile, we're looking at, you know, plant sterols versus animal sterols. And so with that low fat diet, I'm really interested in kind of diving further down and figuring out, is this lower fat you know, helping that? Is it hurting that? Are there specific plants versus animals that are kind of increasing in, you know, in ratios, for example, you know, with the diet being low fat, I obviously need to look into the fat source and figure out if it's an animal fat source or it's something like a a canola oil, for example, something that's plant-based and figure out if it's modulating things like that. So definitely very exciting stuff. I get excited about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's for sure. It's very exciting. And I'm glad that you said also about fat sources. I think same as Protein, the different protein sources, how is that potentially affecting gut health? I think that can be a very important factor to consider in the future. All those amino acid ratios and composition. We know that some amino acids, some enterocytes, they prefer more than others, can have an effect on the bacterial population as well. So I'm excited maybe in the future to, maybe in our future research, our next one, look into those amino acid ratios, protein sources, and how those may have an effect on gut health and leaky gut as well. Yes, I'm definitely definitely excited to take that research to the next level because this diet that I also am working with, it's a fish-based diet. And so it's interesting to kind of take that perspective of like a marine animal, for example, compared to a land animal that's like a chicken or beef diet, for example. So it's definitely something that's exciting. It's definitely different. It's It can be considered more of a premium thing, but is premium, you know, helping with gut recovery to some extent, whether it is, like you said, with amino acid profiles and the gut bacteria that are kind of benefiting from that. Um, so it's definitely something worthwhile looking into for the, the rest of my PhD time here. I always love getting into projects. So. <laughs> yeah, and as also important what you said, the outcomes are looking into. Maybe a specific diet is helping for outcome A, but not much for outcome B. So what you're looking at has a major impact on the results that you're going to present. And inter- interpretation of results is a major, major, major thing as well about research. Yes. And when, when it comes to measuring outcomes and deciding what to measure in a research project, we have to kind of also take the standpoint of what can we actually take measures of? We cannot just unfortunately go take biopsies of a, a healthy dog. That's not something that's usually permitted with totally understandable conditions. Um, but it would be interesting to see, you know, in that stress and disease environment, in a healthy animal, for example, what's what's changing from like a leaky gut perspective? Is it antibiotics? Is it diet? Is it you know, something else that's kind of going on, but I would love to take 
you know, some of the stuff that I'm learning and apply it to a clinical population to kind of get some of those numbers. But unfortunately, that's just not something that that we can do here. But it's a future aspiration if anybody uh has a question about that. So. <laughs> yeah, there's always limitations in research. And as you said, when you work with dogs and cats, we we have limitations what kind of samples can get. So it's just the way of the nature that the field that we are in. But we can still for sure do great research and get uh, great outcomes and inter- interpretation and ideas out of the, the samples that we can get. So I think Exactly. And the fecal samples, yeah, sorry. The fecal samples do show a lot of beneficial things, whether it's, you know, looking at what's escaping the host, what's not being digested or fermented or things like that. Those are really great indicators for you know, maybe something that's missing within the host health, for example, if they're not able to ferment as much and we're seeing more of those fibers escape or we're seeing more, you know, primary bile acids leaving the gut, it's it's definitely something beneficial to definitely look out for and kind of monitor from like a clinical perspective. But also too, an owner's going to look at a sample when they go to pick it up and say, oh, that's so loose or, oh, there's so much of it. And then you can, you know, take that to a nutritionist or take that to a veterinarian and kind of talk about it more. And so the fecal samples definitely give you a lot, a lot of outcomes. And so yeah. it's definitely exciting. It is definitely exciting. And they're always finding new things in a fecal samples. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think the owner is always, I always say three things they're going to notice behavior, uh, fur quality, because they're, you know, petting their pets and fecal quality. So those are the major, I think, uh, aspects that the pet owner is going to notice. So it's very important for us to take a measurement of those and see how our diet is impacting those outcomes. Because that's how the owner is going to perceive if their pet's healthy or not, or something is changing when I change my diet. So that's very important to note as well. And it's a great strength in the studies that we're, we're doing here for my research is that I'm constantly looking at fecal scores. I'm constantly measuring them in an attempt to understand, you know, is it firming up? Is it loosening? And from my research, you know, with, you know, like, for example, the, the milk oligosaccharides or the specialized diet, we're seeing more firm stools. And so it's really great mm-hmm. to always, you know, always, always, always be looking at the fecal sample, seeing what comes out. Because at the end of the day, like you said, that's that's what the owner is going to look at. It's going to be fecal quality and that's it's an exciting thing to try to figure out how to solve <laughs> yeah i always joke when i decide to become a animal nutritionist and become a turdologist because you know poop's gonna be your your passion for your life <laughs> oh i actually love that term i'm gonna start mentioning it my uh, family <laughs> likes to refer to me as the future poop doctor because that's what oh, i do Turdologist, you can make now a, a real scientific term of what you're doing <laughs> oh i'm so gonna do that thank you for teaching me that <laughs> you something today turdologist and your scientific word that being said i use my mass advisor used to use this term a lot so i'm gonna give credit to him for that absolutely I love the credit. I love it. I can't wait to go home and talk about this. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Sarah, for this great conversation. It was great to hear about your master research, your PhD research, and how you're investigating uh, these factors in dogs. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be very excited to hear about your results and, um, you know, all the work we've been doing. And as Sarah mentioned, her master's work is uh, published, so you can Google her name or her advisor name, Dr. Kelly Swanson, and you're going to find her research available and just follow her. There, You're probably going to see her great work from her PhD out in the, the world pretty soon. It's time for our famous three. ProAmpac, your companion in pet packaging. Visit pets.proampac.com to explore our innovative, sustainable solutions, such as our QuadFlex recyclable flat bottom bags, 
ProDura Poly Woven Bags, ProEvo Recyclable Paper Bags with Grease Resistance, and our proactive recyclable film and pouches that run at optimum speeds on your filling equipment. Elevate your wet food, treats, and kibble brand by utilizing packaging that safeguards and preserves product freshness. Trust ProAmpac for packaging that cares for your pets and the planet. Pets.ProAmpac.com But before we finish our episode, Sarah would like to ask some two or three final questions. The first one is you've probably been around uh, a lot of successful people in your life or in university, so lots of great professors, great students as well. So the first one is what is a common trait that you have observed in successful people? Oh, gosh. So I think what really is common with success is always being motivated, always being determined, always asking questions. At least that's kind of what I found is that, you know, you have one question and then you just kind of downfall from there and you end up in a rabbit hole and just never stop asking questions, I think is kind of what I've always seen. Um, but motivation and determination definitely kind of play a role into that. Because if, you know, if I have a question and I'm, you know, don't really feel like answering it, then I'm, I will not be successful in the end because of that. And so it's kind of never losing that that exploration or that, you know, excited adventurer in, in the research world, but also kind of as a student, you know, always challenging um, whether you are a student or you're kind of in the industry is everyone's always learning. So just never stop learning. Always, always explore. Yeah. And I agree with the, everything that you said. And I think discipline is important as well. Sometimes we, nobody's motivated every day. So, but if you have a discipline, you have a goal and you have something in mind that you want to achieve, that's what you want to keep you going. Those days that you're not feeling, you know, working much or there's some frustration having the discipline and uh, goals in life small and big goals also keep you keep you going yes you you are very very correct in that and as a student that's something that i always have to remind myself is that you know <laughs> even though some days i feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel there's always a light and at the end of the day i'm still enjoying research i'm still excited i'm still having fun i get to yeah. see the dogs that i so love i adopted two of our dogs from here so obviously there's some bias there but <laughs> Yeah, I need to learn how to have fun, you know, in everything you do yeah. in life, in your job, there's always frustrations, there's always uh, great achievements, but focus on the great things and keep moving forward. And it does help having a very supportive team, having supportive lab mates that, you know, not only want to do good themselves, but also want to see you do good and are always, you know, kind of your, your support team and your cheerleaders from the back reminding you that, you know, you're not alone. And I find that I... I mean, maybe it was just my first years of my master's and kind of getting thrown into it and learning some things, but it definitely helped having a few, few good people that reminded me that, you know, it's For exciting. Sure. It's fine. You'll get through it. <laughs> so I think you, when you're talking about research, you were very excited about it. Seems like you love it. So what is your favorite part about being a scientist? Oh, gosh. Um, so I always love, I feel... I should say, I find myself asking more questions than I'm prepared to answer at any one time. And so I'm always excited about the next thing. I'm always excited about, you know, I found this one obscure data point. What does it mean? And that's what I like finding is I like having questions and finding answers. And I always love the adventure of, you know, a new research project. Like, what am I going to learn today kind of thing? That's definitely probably my favorite part is I love asking questions. I love you know, I love the satisfaction of knowing an answer, but then there's also 30 more questions that I also get to find an answer to. 
And yeah. it's also pretty rewarding at the end of the day to see your name as first author on a paper. <laughs> yeah, no, I always say you are defined by the questions you ask, but not, not by the answers you give. So yes, I question. do love research. I love science. I love sitting at a workbench and, you know, like hands-on assays and things like that. That's what I love is I love the true scientific nature and yeah. just being curious in general. So the last question I'm going to ask is the question that no PhD student they like to hear, but what are you going to do next? Do you want to go to the industry, uh, make an impact, want to stay in academia, do you have an idea about what is the next step you want to take in your life? Yeah. So if you would have asked me that two years ago, I would have been super intimidated. I would have been like, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and the answer is I still kind of don't know. But I think when I'm done, I've worked so much in healthy disease, stress conditions. And kind of what I want to do is whether it's in industry or it's continuing research, but I want to go the clinical route. I find that to be so fascinating because, you know, I've taken all this knowledge in a healthy animal I've shown benefits that can happen using some of the parameters that I've, you know, I've looked at or kind of tested. So how can I apply that to a clinical population? And that's my next big step. And so that's kind of where I want to go. But where that'll take me, I have no idea. <laughs> I still don't know what I'm doing, what I want to do with my life when I grow up. So it's all good. I think we're all trying to figure out to their next step. And I think life's about priorities. Your priority may be A today, maybe B tomorrow, and that's fine. Life is about changing and adapting to every new challenge and step of the way. Maybe maybe the life lesson here to take away is just never grow up. Never never get there. <laughs> yeah. Keep asking questions, being curious and don't grow up. It's don't grow up. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us today. I was very excited to hear about your research and I'm excited to maybe have you back in the future to talk about your PhD data, what's coming out next. And so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Really had a great time. Great conversations.